I would ask you now to take a Bible, turning to 1 Peter chapter 2. We uh, read last Lord's Day, verses 11 and 12, and spent most of our time only in verse 11. So we take up verse 12 again for our reading and reflection. And this Lord's Day morning, I'm going to have you follow along as I read through to verse 20. So we are reading 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning at verse 12 through to verse 20. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, And suffer for it. You patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. We gather here each Lord's Day to worship and to exalt our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the church, that is the people of God. Not the brick and mortar or steeple, but the blood-bought redeemed are the true church. But it is also true in the realm of space and time. We also refer to the, well, the geographical location of our facilities, the buildings and grounds. In a manner of speaking, we all understand that it too is the church, how often I've left my house saying to my wife, I'm going down to the church for a while. And she knows exactly where I will be. I've always been glad that the two churches I have pastored over more than 30 years now have been located, both of them, on what you'd have to call, I guess, the town's main street. Good Shepherd Church sits on a main street on the border, in fact, of two towns, South Venice and Inglewood. 2550 
Inglewood Road, also known as Route 76, 776, that threads its way down all the way to Port Charlotte, I believe. Not too long after I arrived here at Good Shepherd Church, as we had also done in New Jersey, we purchased and installed an illuminated church sign with a message board. And I have to say, it has been gratifying to have any number of people in the community, when I'm engaging them in conversation, say, oh, yes, that's the church with the sign. I read those things every time I go by. It has been a source of curiosity for some as they go by, messages that uh, make one think sometimes. Sometimes we put words there that I think cause a few to at least smile or even laugh out loud. But all in all, it's a bit of testimony for the gospel as well, isn't it? Right out there on the highway. We, we recognize that the world, especially an unbelieving world, is watching us. This week we posted along with our welcome out there a message that says simply but profoundly, Faith honors God, followed by the words, God honors faith. There's almost a whole sermon in those two lines. We're always looking for the next phrase for another week. Some of you have submitted suggestions and some of them we could never put out in public. But the challenge is always there to say something meaningful, maybe even hopefully something biblical, using the limited space on the sign. But this much is sure the world is watching. I'm not sure I'll use this message line, which I recently came across. It says, love your enemies. After all, you made them. Ouch. I'm not so sure that was what Jesus meant when he commanded us to bless those who curse us or to do good to those who would despitefully use us or to be turning the other cheek when we are unjustly abused. But all of that teaching is in the word of God for us. But I do know that God cares a great deal about how the unbelieving world looks at our behavior. The Bible reminds us constantly that the world is watching and that much is at stake in how we interact with others all around us. How a professing believer in Jesus Christ presents him or herself, to a watching world. I borrowed my sermon title for this morning by paraphrasing one of the great classic writings of Dr. Francis A. Schaeffer. It's hard to believe that man of God went home to be with the Lord now more than 25 years ago. But he was, through his writing and lectures, one of my teachers and will long be remembered as one of the intellectual and spiritual giants of our generation. Now, among his many books, he wrote The Church Before the Watching World. What followed it was another volume entitled The Mark of the Christian. That is, when the world looks at a Christian, what is the Christian's identifying mark to be? 
Schaefer reminded us that our way as believers of living in a fallen world matters. It matters greatly because, if for no other reason, it matters to Christ. Just this week, as I was rereading Schaefer's lecture based on the words of Jesus recorded in John's Gospel, you don't have to turn there, just stay with me. We're coming to 1 Peter chapter 2. But back in the Gospels, chapter 13, verses 33 and 35, listen to Jesus as he has just washed the disciples' feet. And he says this to them. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, he's predicting his death and return to the father. But he leaves them with these words, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And, of course, he had just washed their feet. And then he says, by this loving of one another before a watching world, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love For one another. Now, Jesus is surely concerned about how we, his followers, will get along with each other in the family. He sits at the Father's right hand these last 2,000 years, at the head of the table, and is watching over his children. He wants his children to behave, certainly for their own sakes. But Christ would remind us that there is even more at stake. That an unbelieving world will form its opinion on the basis of how one Christian relates to another Christian. And when we mess up on this issue, and we do, it ultimately reflects, you see, on the work of Christ himself. The church is his work. He's building it. According to several portions of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, the behavior of God's people, that is, in particular, bad behavior, caused the unbelievers watching them to, quote, blaspheme the name of God. You see, it is one thing for a church to get a bad name for itself. Or a poor reputation in a community. But my friends, how much more damning a thing is it when professing believers give unbelievers a reason to give God a bad name? That's what's at stake. The world is watching. I want to take a few more moments here to share with you something more of Jesus' concern. Along these lines, this is setting the context for our study this morning in first Peter. But just before his journey to Golgotha. He was praying to his father, you remember that prayer, that glorious prayer recorded in John chapter 17. He says something even more sober than the truth in John 13 regarding our love for one another. In that high priestly prayer, John chapter 17 and verse 21, I want you to listen to it. 
He's praying to the Father. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is my few disciples, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And here was his concern for us. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, don't ever get the idea that we're the fourth person of the Trinity. But, beloved, this prayer is extraordinary. Jesus is praying to the Father that as he is in the Father and the Father in him, that we, the redeemed by Christ, would be that closely united to the Godhead himself. Why did he pray this? Let me read the rest of the verse. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see again that our behavior is evidence before the world? That it is by our behavior that we are actually in Christ, that we reflect a oneness with Him that is strikingly like the oneness of the Trinity of God itself, that how we live the life of a Christian before a watching world will eventually lead to every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that it was true, that Jesus is Lord. Why is it so important for professing believers to live under and in submission to the Lordship of Christ? Because He is Lord and we are united to Him. And we're responsible for giving the world evidence that God who does exist actually did send Jesus Christ. When they look at us, they're to see irrefutable Evidence. Confession that will have to be made even by those someday tragically descending into hell on judgment day will be this, that Jesus Christ, nevertheless, by every knee and every tongue must be prayed, uh, praise given to him. And the Bible teaches that our behavior before this watching world is crucial to God's redemptive plan as well as his ultimate judgment of the world. The world is watching. Now, it's that context and why I took the moments to do this. It's that context of Christ's sober teaching that Peter sets forth the same concerns for believers In the first century where he writes and in the increasingly godless culture of our 21st century. We spent almost all of our time last Lord's Day at verse 11 in this chapter, which was for the most part. If you were here, you'll remember the spiritual warfare that takes place inwardly. That is on the battleground of our private existence, those skirmishes that must be fought In the mind, the heart, and even the soul. But I want to read verse 11 again because the pursuit of that inward godliness is, of course, uh, 
crucial to an authentic outward witness. So verse 11 said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That one sentence we law we learned, we saw, I think, is packed with spiritually beneficial truth. You may want to order that CD. We offer it to you today, and I have the authority to do this free of charge. Order up one in the reception area before you leave today, last Lord's Day. An important message from verse 11. But now I want you to notice that the scene shifts in verse 12 from the inward concerns of verse 11 to the fact that our outward forms of behavior are set before the eyes of a watching world where the honor of God's name depends in large part upon his disciples and how they think and act before a watching world. It occurred to me this week, reflecting on this truth, that we can't even pray as Jesus taught us to pray without being concerned about the watching world. Because we pray, do we not? Hallowed be thy name. And then Jesus tells us, How we, his children, behave has a lot to do with whether his name will, in fact, be hallowed even by unbelievers, even if it has to wait for the day of judgment. Let's see what Peter counsels then in this regard. This is about the life we live before unsaved family members, friends, co-workers and neighbors. Sometimes the preacher forgets to be personal and specific enough. When I say the world is watching, of course, I'm talking about folks who may in fact be living under the same roof with you or those most intimately acquainted with you, family, friend and neighbor, co-worker, perhaps. Here's what Peter says there. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, that's the generic term for those still outside of God's grace in that day, unbelievers. Now, look what unbelievers do to Christians when they discover one. That in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them. And then I think this is a chilling phrase. They, those same people, will have to glorify God, it says, in the day of visitation. Now, that's not just Jesus stopping by to say hello. The day of visitation is, in fact, Judgment Day. Last week, we used the image of what it means to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ while we occupy enemy territory, this fallen world. I want to stay with that analogy as we unpack now uh, verse 12. Point one, if you like points, here's point one of what it means to be a good soldier In the public arena, Peter says, as we've just read, your behavior is to be excellent. You and I are not to give the enemy, the enemy of God's grace, the unbelieving people around us. We are not to give the enemy a cause for belittling, let alone blaspheming. 
the gospel. Once or twice in my life, I have heard these words, and at least on one occasion, I recall that it was directed toward me, and I think it is one of the most painful, hurtful things that any child of God could ever hear from someone else. Words that go something like this. And you call yourself a Christian. Does anything go any deeper than that for you, do you think? You said that? You did that? And you call yourself a Christian? Ouch. You know, probably one of the best bumper stickers I've ever seen, I think, is, and I collect those things when I see them, is one that says, Christians aren't, what, perfect just forgiven. And we slap that on a bumper and think it's a gotcha to the world. Now, the sentiment of that truth is truth. But it must not become a cover or an excuse for anything less than excellent Christian behavior. The bumper sticker won't carry much weight with the Florida Highway Patrol, if he sees that while Christians are not perfect, they do run red lights, but in this case will not go on or will not go forgiven, you see. What unregenerate person would not want to use our behavior or my behavior as an excuse for not coming to Christ. You know that unbelievers, are, unbelievers by sinful nature are in the business of resisting the gospel message. And why would they not want to lay hold of something they see in us to say, aha? Why would they not take hold of something to enhance their argument? As we often hear that we're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Point two of what it means to be a good soldier in the public arena, other than excellent behavior, he says, remember, is to live as though you are an alien and a stranger, a pilgrim. It is to accept the fact that even if your behavior is excellent, our text tells us we're going to be slandered anyway. The text says so that in the thing in which they slander you, even as an evildoer, that is to be accused of something you didn't do. It was this very thing, by the way, that enabled the Roman government to crucify Jesus. Nobody's behavior was more excellent than that of Jesus, but he was accused and he was slandered and he was lied about. It was slander and false accusation and a mock trial that that laid the bloody path to Golgotha. Jesus warned us, remember, if the world hates you, they hated me first. If you are a child of God and you are, by His grace, pursuing excellent behavior, this text tells me we, you, will face opposition. Even false accusation. Sometimes... 
like in the workplace. It's just the subtle digs. Other times it can be quite overt, hurtful, and even hateful. I think the text is telling us believers not only to expect it, but deal with it. And if we'll deal with it before the Lord, you'll find that your Lord, who's already walked that path, will be the very present help in the time of such trouble. And so, understand that opposition will come as you pursue excellent or godly behavior. Not everyone will think you're wonderful because you're so much like Jesus. They nailed him to a cross. Point three of what it means to be a good soldier in the public arena. Make it your practice, your habit of life. How simple is this? The text says to do good deeds. Oh, that every professing believer would be, well, like a boy scout or a girl scout keeping their pledge For the very ones who slander will, if you examine this text carefully, have those good deeds actually called up, brought as a witness against the slanderer, it says, in the day of visitation, in the day of judgment. What a picture is this? In my life, there will be that brash Joe Jones or that In your face, James Smith, who despised my Christian witness, perhaps even slandered godly behavior, but then at the same time will not be able to deny, it says in the day of judgment, that your deeds, those deeds they mocked, those deeds they ridiculed, those deeds they twisted and called even evil, they will have to acknowledge were deeds that were the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. You see, verse 12, may, and I, I've worked on verse 12, and I have to tell you, I think it strongly suggests that some people, literally on their way to hell, will for the first time in their lives actually have to give credit, which is to say in a certain kind of way, even to give glory to God as they have laid before them the evidence of the saints' good deeds. That your good deeds wrought in Christ will be evidence brought against hell-bent sinners. How Awesome then, how sober a responsibility. And by the way, how we ought to pray that God would have mercy on some. That our pursuit of excellent godly behavior and the evidence of good deeds might even lead someone to glorify God before it is eternally too late. It makes a difference how we behave. Christ says, the honor of my name is directly linked to whether your behavior is excellent, godly behavior or not. Now, quick, more quickly, actually, in the verses that follow, especially the immediate context of verses 13 through 20, the apostle is providing practical, real life examples of what godly or excellent behavior looks like 
in very specific settings. And each of these, I will say, are worthy of separate sermons. I suppose uh, we should do this sometime. But for now, let me state that Peter speaks to two great arenas of life where our Christian witness will be scrutinized by most in this watching world. And as you'll follow the text with me, the first arena you see has to do with civil matters. In our day and age, at this particular heated hour, I almost dare to say in matters related to politics. But I'm no fool. The first arena does have to do with civil matters. Things, Peter says, related to human institutions of government. We're going to see that in verses 13 through 16. And then what I might refer to as the more personal, communal relationships. First, the civil matters, verses 13 through 16, and then the communal relationships, verse 17. Then in verses 18 through 20, he uses, as we will see, one's relationship in matters related even to livelihood. Uh, Often the text being applied to those still gainfully employed who have a boss and have to go to work each day. The example there may be somewhat specific, but the principles work out in universal ways. That is, even for retired people, if I may say that this morning. Civil and communal or community relationships where people are watching always have to do, these matters always have to do with how Christians Relate to authority. How are Christians to relate? I could put it this way to the powers that be. Or if what if I said how we relate to the in our particular human institution, the United States of America, how are we to relate to our elected leaders? Those, like it or not, who are in authority. Verse 13 begins this way, folks, with a word. And the word is submit. It is not the most favorite word in our English vocabulary. None of us. Submit. You see what makes that so hard is that we are submitting to every human institution, Peter says, and every human institution has in it inherent imperfections and degrees of injustice. The Democrats have this problem, the Republicans have this problem, and the Independents have this problem, and people who could care less have this problem. Now, what makes it a little easier to submit to such imperfection in human institutions? Notice what Peter says. We are being called upon as Christians to submit, but to do so, it says, for the Lord's sake. Let me ask you, what are you, what would you be unwilling to submit to if, in fact, the Lord is asking you to do it. 
Uh, let me, uh, we're going to reread these important verses that are examples of verse uh, 12 as it works out. And I'll uh, watch the time and only make a few comments along the way. But you'll get the idea, I think, very quickly. Here it is again, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he says, whether to a king. Today, we would say in our context, whether to a president, whether to a Congress, whether to a Supreme Court, whether to the governor of a state, whether to the mayor or the council. First order of responsibility before a watching world is for the Lord's sake. We're to be the people who submit. As sent by him. What's interesting about verse 14, it's one of the best definitions of what human government is supposed to do if it's functioning the way God intended. Government exists for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. I really think this is Peter's way of saying to his readers, I know I just told you to submit to the king. And that what we're talking about, believers, you know, is Caesar, is Rome. You think things are bad in America? We conservative Christians want to whine and complain about all that's going on because there seems to be some liberal agenda in place. And we have fear mongers telling us it's all going to dissolve and be washed away overnight if we don't do something. I still wait to hear what it is we're supposed to do. In the meantime, I have the word of God saying, shut up. Submit. Now, the word of God says a lot more. The primary role of a believer who's concerned about political agendas in their own nation, did you know, is a call to prayer. It is a call to prayer to pray for those in authority, the scriptures say, because we are concerned about what course the nation takes under what kinds of leaders, but are concerned in that text that Paul gives us is to tell us he wants the nation to continue to be a place even under Caesar where the gospel can spread. The gospel's the priority, not a social agenda, not even the moral list of do's and don'ts. Those are of great concern. After all, we have to live in this place. So go to the polls and vote. Vote with the wisdom that God gives you in the scriptures. Pray more than vote. But in the end, before a watching world, my sense is, as I've searched not only this scripture, but all those scriptures I could find this week about what kind of profile a believer is to take in the midst of heated political debate. We are to reverence authority. Such is the will of God. Verse 15, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, because in Christ we are. Do not use your freedom, however, as a covering for evil, but use it as good citizens of your country. No, Use the freedom you have to be a bond slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. See, freedom, which is bound by the will of God, is true freedom and joy, no matter who holds office or who has the majority of votes in Congress. 
It's a whole lot less feverish and a whole lot less complicated than we think if we're going to do that which pleases the Lord. Look at the summary. It's simple. In verse 17, honor all people. You can't do that if you're calling them names. Love the brotherhood. Keep the love fervent between you and your fellow believers. Interestingly enough, he then says, reverence God. Fear God. And then he says, if you do, you'll honor the king. You'll manage to submit. Because you know what I read to us in our preparation for worship? That portion of scripture, which is still true today, though many are wringing their hands. It is God who raises one king up and brings a king down and puts another in his or her place. What are we worried about? Would that many believers would get as passionate about the gospel as they are all the political banter. Servants, be submissive to your masters. The workplace counts with all respect. Look at this. Not only those who are good and gentle, but if I could give the modern phrase, it would be, even if your boss is a jerk, even if unreasonable. You see, in a fallen world, a lot of things are just dumb. What did you expect in a world that's out of contact with its creator? How we act in this pursuit of excellence. Verse 19. This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, what are we to do? We may have no choice but to bear up, it says, under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin you're harshly treated? That's not say poor me then. Just say, well, Lord, I deserve that. But if when you do what is right and you bear it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What a weight comes off my shoulders as I was reminded in this text that I don't have to ultimately find favor with my unbelieving neighbor. Why, ultimately, I don't have to please all of you. That's impossible anyway. I have enough to do if at the end of every day I can put my head down on my pillow and have the Holy Spirit of God examine my motives, my actions, my thoughts, and my deeds. I sleep rather well if by His grace and His grace alone I can say, Father, It wasn't perfect, that's for sure. But you helped me. And I think you're pleased. And folks, there's nothing like, even if you had to live under a Caesar, for goodness sake, where Christians were thrown to lions. How's that for a system? You want to vote for that? Want to give up, run away, find another place to live? Move to Canada? Canada sometimes looks real attractive to me for various reasons. At the end of the day, if God is pleased, then I too am happy. And I can live anywhere. And the Christian can take anything 
And the darker it gets when Satan's agenda seems to be moving forward, only the brighter will we shine as lights in this world. Let's not get off course. Our agenda is one. The Apostle Paul put it this way. I just want to know the cross. I just want to talk about Jesus. I want you to know that the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. And whatever is going to take place here, I know my sovereign God is in control. But that what he wants from me is to live my life by his strength and in his grace before a watching world. Because the honor of his name is at stake. Can I get an amen? As we leave this place, I'll ask the instrumentalists to play the refrains of that hymn, Our Best. But I want to respect your time and I will lead us now in a prayer of blessing upon you as you go out into this world, honoring, bringing honor to the name of our Lord and Savior. Beloved to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, children of and priests to his God and Father, to him, to him be glory and dominion forever forever. And God's people said,